When humans try to study other humans, it gets a little dicey, says Humboldt State University's Melinda Myers. Behavior is difficult to measure directly because we have to rely on what you tell us because you get upset when we try to watch you. (laughs) And when researchers base their gender and sexuality work on certain assumptions, as you're about to learn, that research gets a little dodgy. My name is Mike Dronkers, and this is my favorite lecture from KHSU, featuring remarkable talks from HSU educators. Melinda Myers specializes in gender and sexuality. She's really popular with the students. She teaches multicultural queer studies, statistics, research design, tons of different things. Just a quick heads up that this episode will feature some adult content, if you're sensitive to that sort of thing. And now would be a great time to pop over to khsu.org, where you'll see some of the slides that she's using live as well as links to research and researchers that she references. Those links are probably safe for work, too. My favorite lecture is recorded in front of a full audience at the Plaza View Room in Arcata, California. And before she took the podium, we got a little preview of what we were in for. I'm going to talk about how it is we've studied sexuality and why that matters. So many, there are laws, right? Laws that are currently being passed or being proposed to be changed that would limit what kind of work somebody can do. You can fire people for being gay in several states in the United States. You can fire people for their gender expression. And my belief is, and the science would support, that that's wrong. So what I want to talk about is why the science about how we study that matters so that people have some tools they can use to challenge those kinds of statements if maybe a relative makes it or challenge a law if they want to get involved in policy. You have been studying gender studies for decades. And in that time, we've seen, is it safe to say revolutionary social progress in terms of acceptance? Yeah, that is a fair statement. And we're also seeing pushback to that, which also makes sense. Social movements of many kinds have seen that kind of progress and then pushback cycle. I would never have predicted that so soon we would have same-sex marriage legal in the whole United States and in many other countries. That blows me away and I think it's amazing. One of the things that happens is that because the world didn't end when that happened and more people know more same-sex couples, what's happened is that approval for it has gone up a lot since it was legalized. And here's the important part as far as I'm concerned, because I really like kids and young people and college students, is that the rate of suicide and self-harm among queer-identified youth is dropping a lot in the states where same-sex marriage is legal. And I think that speaks to why the things that we're going to talk about tonight are important. In addition to teaching psychology at Humboldt State, you are a business owner, you are a clinical psychologist, everybody knows you. What is the number one question that people ask you at the grocery store that may not be appropriate for grocery store questioning? It's going to be some version of, I experience blank, what's wrong with me? And it could be anything. But people worry about their sexuality a lot. And because we don't talk about it, it's hard to shine light on that. So what I would say is it's normal for almost all of us to walk around worrying that something about it isn't quite right. What we like, how we do it, whether we do it enough, whether we do it too much, whether we like A, B, or C, or all of the above. And so people ask me a lot of questions very worriedly about whether or not they're okay. And almost always they are. Welcome to my favorite lecture. (laughs) 
Thank you all for coming out to the Plaza Grill. That was awesome. Somebody yesterday told me it sounds too much like a party on the radio. <laughs> it's true. So what we're doing tonight, if you don't know, uh, we do this thing where we have our little interdisciplinary nerd party. Do some Q&A afterwards, so if you have questions, write them down. Melinda Myers is a clinical psychologist. She teaches at the Humboldt State University Psychology Department. Any psych majors here? Any psych people? Yeah. She's a business owner and I believe a fifth generation Humboldt County resident. Please give it up for Melinda Myers. Many glasses. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I am a fifth generation Arcata native, and it's part of what I'm going to talk about tonight because I'm going to talk about identity. But I want your help in defining what that is. Okay, what is sexuality? Physical intimacy. Physical intimacy? OK. What else? Or lack thereof. Or lack thereof. Good. What else? Who you're attracted to. Who you're attracted to. What else? How you get off. How you get off, excellent. What else? Gender. Gender, good, good. What else? Spiritual portal. Spiritual portal, ooh, yes. Other middle-aged lady in the room. <laughs> what else? Maybe recovering from negative abuse situations. Maybe we've got some stuff in our little wheelbarrow that we're bringing into the situation. Good. So our past experience influences the way that we do sexuality. So what I want to talk tonight about is the study of sexuality. And the title of my talk is, That's So Gay? <laughs> because what I want to do is to critique the science around sexuality research. Before I do that, I'd like to tell you why I care about it. So I have been teaching at Humboldt for a really long time, I think 23 years. I have students now who were not born when I started teaching at home. Um, it's very, it's a different place. My students are more likely to be first generation college students. My students are more likely to come in needing both math and English remediation. And 25% of my students do not identify as heterosexual. I'm gonna pause and let that sink in. I just said that 25% of the students at Humboldt State do not identify as heterosexual. But now I want to know, I want to tell you why I think you should care. The reason I think you should care about this as well is there are many laws right now and others being proposed that are going to limit the rights of people based on things like the way they do gender, the people they love, the kind of sex they want to have, and I think we should all care about that. So what I'm hoping to do by the end of tonight is two things. One, help you be less sure about what you think sexuality means than when you came in. And two, I'm hoping to give you some fuel to use when someone, you're in a conversation and they say something obnoxious, right? You know what I'm talking about, obnoxious. And you know they're wrong. But somehow, standing up on the table, pounding your fist and saying, you're wrong, is just not as convincing as when you've got science to back you up. But I want that science to be good. I want it to be really good. 
The last time I gave a version of this talk was to a group of psychology students 10 years ago. And at that time, there is something different about what I need to do tonight that I didn't need to do then, and it's related to the current political climate. I need to affirm and assert that I am proud to be a scientist. <laughs> I went to um, a commission meeting recently where one elected official was resigning because he'd been elected to a new position, and they were making a decision about who was going to replace him. The candidates were contrasting themselves using language like this. Well, I'm not a scientist. I have common sense, so you should put me on this board. And the people in the audience were saying, there are too many scientists on that board. You need someone with common sense. And I was sitting there feeling like, wait, what? <laughs> science is good. It's a really good tool. And the fact that I am going to critique it tonight doesn't mean I'm not a scientist. And it doesn't mean I don't think it is the best tool to solve a whole bunch of problems that we have as a society. So I encourage you, even though I may not list every single source out loud, I'm going to show you four pages of references at the end of this slide, and I am happy to back up anything I say tonight. Just ask me. And ask my students. They'll tell you. I love to do this. <laughs> so why? Because science. <laughs> now, what do I mean by that? So, I have an advantage when I'm teaching this to my undergraduate students in that I get to make them read things that are good for them. <laughs> and I make them read about what science is and why they should care. So here's the short version. Science is an idea or a theory which is developed and polished and continues to be explored. The theory is how we derive something we call a prediction or a hypothesis. And with that prediction, we are able to test whether or not our theory is sound. Once we have this hypothesis, we develop an experiment to test the prediction. If our theory is correct, then our prediction will probably come out the way we expected, which we'll find out in the experiment. We're observing something in the experiment. We're going to change something, and we're going to see if it changes something else. Now that's great, except many of the things I'm interested in studying, we can't change. So we have to be really creative about the methods. For example, I can't take this half of the room and randomly assign you all to have crappy childhoods and take this half of the room and randomly assign me as your mother. <laughs> and, then, and then wait 20 years and see how you feel about yourself, how you feel about your sexuality, the quality of your relationships, right? Like that would be an experiment, and I can't do it because it isn't ethical. And as I'll talk about a little bit later, we've made many really bad decisions doing really terrible things ethically as scientists that we need to continually atone for and hold each other accountable for. So some of the places bias can come into this, because this is a very pretty model, right? The way I just described it, it sounds awesome. So what's the problem? Well, sometimes the theory itself is biased, meaning let's talk about Freudian theory. We call it psychodynamic theory. 
Freudian theory is built on the premise that women are fundamentally, inherently, innately, essentially inferior to men. And no amount of fancy anything you do after that changes that fact, right? So the theory being biased leads us to ask really bad questions. Here's an example from a psychoanalytic journal. Just how immature are the defense mechanisms women use who orgasm from stimulation of their clitoris compared to women who <laughs> orgasm during intercourse with a man? I'm not making it up, and it wasn't 40 years ago, and it's in a published journal. Okay? Other places we might see bias besides theory and besides the way we ask a question could be in the method itself. So one of, one of the studies that I use to argue with one of my colleagues, um, who's brilliant, um, is there's an a, a article in the Journal of Genetics, and this article is an article about really fancy genetics designed to explain to us why men are gay. It actually is about why people are gay, except they only studied men. But that's another problem. So in this journal, they were looking at the direction the cowlick grows on your head. I'm not making it up. Clar is the author's name. And they wanted to compare this between gay men and straight men, so they did. Right? I want you to just think in your mind. Tell me, you don't have to tell it out loud. I just want you to think of one way. If you wanted to get a group of gay men and compare it to a group of straight men, just think for a second about how you might do that. Now let me tell you how Clark did it. He went to a known gay beach, and he took pictures of the men on the gay beach, assuming that they would be gay, and zoomed in on their hair whorls. Right. He zoomed in to see <laughs> the direction their hair grew. Now, you have to have a comparison group of its science, right? So guess where he got his comparison group? Where would you go find a group of straight men? At the mall. Wait, 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 he did what? Yes, he went to a shopping mall and assumed that the men at the shopping mall were straight. Now, in fairness, compared to the men at the gay beach, they probably were more like, uh, to be straight, but it's a terrible way to sort people into gay and not gay. And if the whole point of your research paper is why somebody has this quality compared to this group of people who don't have it, then you can't be sloppy in the way you sort that out. Oh, here's one of my favorite ways bias crops in, in observation. All right, so I want you to imagine that you are in, and I'm, just because I'm going to be gentle with you, let's talk about the study of sleep instead of the study of sex, and I'll let you fill in the blanks. So in the study of sleep, when we want to know about what stages of sleep do what for people, we put them in a sleep lab, and we hook them up to many things. There are things on their head. There are things on their chest. There are things on the big muscles in their body. Some of you maybe have had a sleep study, and you know what I'm talking about. And then we say, don't mind us, just sleep normally. We're gonna be over here watching you all night. Hmm. Well, in sex research, this is an even bigger problem. Okay, here we go, Lauren, wish me luck. <clears throat> I need to talk about intersectionality, okay? Now, intersectionality is this idea that 
Just because someone is gay or has some other characteristic, that doesn't mean that they are like everyone else that has that category and unlike everyone who doesn't. And I'm going to try to explain this using me as an example because I'm up here and you can see me. Those are ingredients, right? So each of us in all of our aspects of identity could be represented by one of these ingredients. For example, I'm a female-bodied person. I happen to have two X chromosomes, ovaries, and a uterus, and a vulva. I was born female. That could be like an egg. Okay? But in addition to that, I'm also a feminine gendered person. We'll call that dark chocolate, just for fun. <laughs> and I'm also a fifth generation Arcata person, which, believe me, colors so much about my life. <laughs> We'll say that's cinnamon. I have a spouse that's flour. And I'm a parent, definitely nuts. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that all of those things are the same as everybody else who has those qualities, right? Like many of the other people in this room are eggs, right? And some of you also have nuts, but there are also eggs with no nuts and nuts with no eggs. And once you put all this stuff together into a cake, then the eggs and the nuts and the chocolate and the cinnamon and the vanilla are forever changed. And they are no longer like the eggs and the nuts and the vanilla and the cinnamon that aren't in the cake, but in some ways they are. Okay? And it makes studying it different, right? So the way that I do woman, mom, uh, is so different and in some ways so much the same as, say, an urban mom from someplace I've never been, right? Like, these could be really different. And when we're studying sexuality, we have to keep that in mind because all of those things intersect to contribute to how we understand sexuality. So I don't identify as heterosexual, but I walk around and lots of people assume that I am, except that everybody knows me and has heard me say that. But aside from that fact, aside from that fact, I, I wear the clothes you know, I dress up, I do most things in red lipstick, which is a thing for people who are feminine gendered. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> it's also a thing for other people who aren't feminine gendered. They can do whatever they want. So what I'm trying to say is when we're studying sexuality and we think we're studying this thing that's an egg or that's flour, we always have to keep in mind its context. And that stuff's hard to study, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Ooh, thank you for the snaps. So here's some problems that I see in sexuality research. One is the focus is limited. We only pick an egg. We only study gay. And we don't study any other aspect of sexuality. And I'm pretty sure if I just gave you three seconds, you could think of many other kinds of sexuality besides gay, right? Yes. Two, we don't count gay well even. We do a terrible job counting gay. And third, we overgeneralize. As I said, we have a bunch of research about orientation and its development and its expression in males and people who identify as men. And it gets generalized onto women as if somehow magically it's the same thing. And it's not. And last, we look at it through a lens of sickness. You can't just like say, well, I'm going to find out exactly how messed up gay kids are, right? Because you're going to miss a lot of resiliency, a lot of strength. And especially if you only count kids who identify as gay, like, I want you to, and I'm probably not the only queer person in this room, but I just want you to think, if I'm not, am I not? 
Thank you. I want you to think back to when you first got that inkling that there was something about you that was different than all of the other representatives you had. Because one of the problems with this is this inherent belief that somebody is heterosexual until proven otherwise. So I just want you to think back to like when you first had an idea about that. And what that looked like and what that felt like and maybe the words you used to describe it. So if some well-meaning middle-aged white researcher had come over to you and said, so, are you gay? You would have been, ah, not me, no. <laughs> so we have to think about and be really clever about the ways that we study this. When I say overgeneralize, and I say most of the research is on men, there's another problem with this. And that is that while there are almost everything we study in psychology, there is zero to no difference, really close to zero, less than an effect size of 0.2 for statistics geeks, tiny difference between males and females. But in sexuality, there actually may be, the research suggests there's some sort of fundamental differences in the way our sexuality is organized. And there's a lot of research still to be done. And I'm hoping to inspire you, because there's a lot of students here, and I'm going to tell you a bunch of stuff you can do, because I'm old and tired. <laughs> What we want to avoid is this. This is a picture from the Tuskegee experiment. It was one of the most horrible things humans have done in the name of science. This is a group of African-American men who had syphilis, who were told they were being treated when they weren't because the researchers wanted to just see what happened. Now, this is abhorrent, and it's the epitome of bad science. It's way worse than overgeneralizing. It's way worse than not considering, considering intersectionality when we study sexuality. But I just want to be sure that we make sure that we don't ever do this again. So if we're going to look at minority sexual orientations, in other words, gayness, we're going to start with an assumption like the star-bellied snitches are better than the snitches without stars. You all know that, right? And if that's true, then the star-bellied snitches get together. And I, I've been one of these star-bellied snitches. And we say things like, let's go find out just how messed up those snitches without stars are, those poor babies. How could they have managed growing up with no stars? So when we're studying only an orientation label like gay, which we don't do well, we often start with assumptions that we can't prove, like that we know what gay is. And we don't. And before I go a little bit further than that, I should tell you that some researchers are doing this really well. Lisa Diamond is one. Um, Peplau is another one. And my, one of my favorites is Janet Shibley Hyde. And these people are studying sexuality and gender in context. For example, Janet Shibley Hyde looks for gender similarities rather than difference, which is a great way to find it. Um, and her papers are beautiful. It's the one paper I make every student read in every class I teach besides um, intro, because I'm kind of easy on those kids still. <laughs> but don't tell them that. They think I'm really hard. <clears throat> so when we measure sexuality, one of the most common ways we do it is we ask people their identity. Everybody who's gay, raise your hand, right? See? And we get a couple people raise their hand. But let's just say that we're representative of Humboldt State. 25% of the people in the room are thinking, well, I'm not exactly gay, but I'm not exactly straight either, right? So we're not gonna, we're gonna miss them. So in studying sexuality, 
You can't just study the sex part because it's inextricably tied to the gender part. Okay? And I stole this. This is a really clever graphic to explain gender. So there is gender identity. That is the voice inside your head that says, I am a girl, or I am a boy, or I'm not sure, or I'm genderqueer. Those things exist up here. Then we have this part right here, and I'm going to talk more about this in a minute, which is who you are attracted to. Then we have the way you express gender. I wear really boring clothes. But it's one of the ways that I express gender. Okay. Um, then there's this biological sex, which is way more complicated than I can possibly get into. But just let me introduce it to say this. It is true that there are some people, like me, with two X chromosomes, two ovaries, a uterus, and a vulva. And there are a lot of people with an X and a Y chromosome who have testes and a penis. And there are a whole lot of people who don't biologically fit those exact molds. About 2% of people. So when we say whether or not somebody is gay, we do it right now based on that person's biological sex. We look at our parts. We look at their parts. If they match, we're queer. If they don't match, we're straight. But we're one of the only cultures in the world that do that, and it's one of the only times in history when it's been done that way. For example, in the Balkans, there were, there's a category of gender called the sworn virgins. And they, uh, usually this happens when the only surviving child is female. And that person, through a series of cultural um, events, becomes and takes on the role of male and is recognized as the heir. And this existed for a really long time. Um, another example. Trying to think of some that are really easy. Oh, in, in some places in Mexico, not all of Mexico, but in some places in Mexico and in some other places in the world, a man is not gay for having sex with other men. He's only gay if he's the receiver. Because, because to be gay is to be like a woman. So if you're receiving a penis into some part of your body, that's what makes you gay. But if you're the giver, if you're giving the penis to someone else, regardless of the sexual... I, um, the sex, biological sex of that partner, you are still straight. So, and that's just two examples. In, in uh, what we now call North America, prior to colonization, you know there were people here, right? <laughs> um, here, where I'm standing, I am on Weot land. But there were, um, uh, there were at least 150 genders besides male and female that we know about just in North America. And they're all really, really different. So, you know, I don't, I always hate it when somebody says Native Americans and then they make this grand sweeping statement. It's like, do you know how many different peoples you're talking about when you make that statement? Okay, so gender is complicated. Sexuality is complicated. It's got at least three components. One is identity. Are you gay? One is attraction, and I'll come back to that. And the other is behavior. Behavior is difficult to measure directly, because we have to rely on what you tell us, because you get upset when we try to watch you. <laughs> <laughs> we, 
right? And there are a lot of reasons why people might behave. They might have sex for reasons other than desire, right? Immigration status, a particular Slovenian example is coming to mind right now. Yes, I did just say that. Um, sometimes people have sex because they think they're supposed to. Sometimes people have sex because they want to have a baby. Sometimes people have sex with someone else because they get paid to do it. Sometimes people have sex with someone else because they have no power to say no. So there's a lot of reasons why behavior wouldn't necessarily be the best marker for sexuality. But then there's another problem. <laughs> so if we're trying to measure identity, that is a socio-political label, right? It's like, I am a fifth generation Arcata native, right? This is, this is like a label. Saying somebody is gay is a label like saying they're a Republican. And there are people who are both. Not that person, but there are people who are both. But it's easier to count gay people. And if we want to do a study, and we, we like having many people in our sample, we call this a big N. We get very excited about big Ns. Um, we are sometimes not so picky about the N. So if I wanted to do a study of a bunch of gay people, I could go to the gayborhood, <laughs> right, where there are a bunch of, usually white, people who identify with this particular label as gay, and those people have sex with other, usually white, male people who call themselves gay, and then we wind up with this, right? He's really gay. Like, as opposed to what? Sort of gay? Is it really true that only good-looking white dudes are really gay? And what about the rest of us? No fault to Anderson Cooper, who is indeed gorgeous. So what I want to talk about is what existed before the categories of gay Right? Before the, right, because it's been around. It's, we, you know this, right? That behavior and attraction to same sexed people is as old as humanity and exists in almost many other species that we've studied, right? So it has to have existed before the political label of gay. So what was there first? Well, behavior, but that's hard to study, and attraction. Now, what's attraction? My students know it's coming. So, this is how you know. Okay? You're minding your own business. You're walking across campus. And you see somebody, damn. <laughs> and that's attraction. Now, if there is any biological contribution to sexuality, it's in there somewhere. That thing that makes you go, dang. Right? That's what it is. But that's a hard thing to measure because you might not want to admit it. And what you do with that attraction, now there's a whole lot of rules about that, right? A whole lot of rules about that. So I happen to be a married person, and in my marriage we have an agreement that no matter how much, damn, I stay over here. <laughs> right? It's an agreement that I make. It's a political agreement. It's a, a social contract. It serves me very, very well, and I made it very freely after thinking about lots of other alternatives and thinking, you know, I tried that once in about 1982 and it didn't go very well for me. <laughs> so we need a better way of doing it. And measuring attraction is hard, but we should try. 
And we need to avoid like deciding that only certain very prototypical people get to hold this label. There are other examples of this, right? Do you know what a gold star lesbian is? A gold star lesbian is a woman who has only ever had sex with women and never had sex with a man. She's really a lesbian. So measuring attraction is tricky, but there are people who are doing it. And this is one of my very favorite studies. And it's older than most of the studies that I'm going to tell you about, admittedly. Study came out in 1994. The authors of this study are Adams, Wright, and Lohr. And what they hypothesized was that men who say they're straight but score high in measures of homophobia will respond more to gay porn <laughs> than men who identify as straight who are not homophobic. So they hooked up some men <laughs> to a variety of devices measuring other parts of their body that I couldn't find a picture of. <laughs> they showed them gay porn. And then, actually before they did that, they gave them a piece of paper test that measures levels of homophobia. And we can actually do that pretty well. And the researchers who were showing the porn do not know who's high and who's low. The people who are doing the measurements, the plethysmography measurements, don't know who's high in homophobia, who's low in homophobia. They just are measuring everybody. Then lo and behold afterwards, they looked at the results to see whether indeed their hypothesis, their prediction, was supported. And guess what? Homophobic straight men do indeed respond to gay porn at a very high rate. So that's one way to measure attraction. So one of the things I asserted at the beginning was that it may be true, the research suggests that, male and female sexuality might be organized differently. Now keep in mind that there's some of the things that we found about women recently we've not yet tested on men. Now there's a switch. <laughs> but in this particular study, which is from 2000, these are all of the people out of this, serve, this study, 147 men, 238 who identify as women, who are not heterosexual in some measure, meaning they score above a zero on a Kinsey scale. So Kinsey scale goes from zero, completely homosexual, and Kinsey meant attraction, not identity. And six is completely homosexual attraction. Okay. What, he, what these researchers found is that the black bars represent the men's scores. And I want you to notice that that is bimodal. And what that means is there's two humps. So there's a group of men over here and a group of men over here. But there's a lot more men in this half of the scale. So what we're seeing there in this, compared to women, where there's a whole lot of women who, to use the vernacular I've been using tonight, are sort of gay. <laughs> and fewer women who are completely exclusively gay. And the reason this matches what other researchers have found is that it seems to be that at least among the women who've been tested, there are a couple of long-term studies. That's what Lisa Diamond's work is about, and I love her work. And in other studies, um, Rosemary Basson, um, studied the way that women's sexual response is organized. And it may be that some humans, and the ones they've studied happen to be those who identify as women, their sexuality is responsive. It means they like to be asked to dance rather than do the asking. And it's a, as fundamental a part of their sexuality as who they're attracted to. 
and it's not really changeable. Now, why is that important? Well, because one of the things I do as a clinical psychologist is I treat people with low libido. But maybe it's not that their libido is low, it's just that their partner's tired of initiating, and so he says to her, honey, you should initiate more. And she says, you know, I don't really like that. And he says, well, there's something wrong with you. Let's go see the psychologist. <laughs> so it may be, and what Rosemary Basson, and her work was so influential, it changed the DSM. And that's this big book that we used to label people with. So she was the, she was the lead author of the um, sexuality working group. And she's a urologist. And um, her, I found her work really compelling. Now, my hypothesis, here you go, students, is I suspect there are a whole bunch of male-bodied people with receptive sexuality as well. We've just not asked for that. Okay. There you go. Several theses in there. So I decided that I would pull some actual journal article titles for you, say that three times fast, that demonstrate the kinds of looking through the lens of illness that I was talking about. So this one's called Birth Order and Sibling Sex Ratio in Homosexual Male Adolescents and Probably Pre-Homosexual Feminine Boys. <laughs> now, I, I want you to know that this is a, this is a highly stu cited study. And the, this way of picking who's gay, you, there's, wait, gay and gender are not the same thing. Does physical abuse, sexual abuse, or neglect in childhood increase the likelihood of same-sex sexual relationships and cohabitation? Which terrible thing is it? <laughs> That's a 2010 study right there. So some of the things that are better. One, we are including people with low levels of same-sex attraction instead of only talking to the gay people. One of the problems in this is that um, because of this presumed heterosexuality, anybody who's never had sex with another person is presumed to be straight. Right? Because if that's the sort, and it is in Bogart and a bunch of other studies, the sort is the way they decide. And think they're, they're, what they think they're doing is counting gay better. And so they decided to count everybody who says that they were, had any level of attraction. No, they're counting number of sex partners. So if you have had one or more same-sex partners since the age of 18, automatically gay. <laughs> <laughs> Tequila notwithstanding. <laughs> and if, and if, if you've had zero sexual partners of any kind, then what does that make you? Not gay yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm one recruit shy of a toaster oven. <laughs> oh. Oh. So some of the studies looking at the genetic basis of orientation compare twins, which we love to do in psychology and other sciences, I'm sure. But one of the things they do is they ask people are you identical twin? Are you fraternal twin? Do you know people are actually not that good at that? Because very few people actually had their genetics tested. Mm -hmm. So this is not a super reliable way. I mean, it's better than nothing, but it's not a super reliable way of measuring, we call it zygosity, whether or not somebody's an identical or fraternal twin. Um, there, are, there is more research using female-bodied people and female-identified people, and like Basson's work, work sex, set, um, centered around women. 
And all of those people are studying the eggs inside the cake and not just the eggs in the carton, which I really like. Okay, last major concept. Wish me luck, Lauren. So good science is reflexive. We always need to remember that our experience, our expectation, and our motivations influence what we study, influence the way that we interpret our findings, influence what we decide to publish, influence what we teach. We are affected by our work, and our, ourselves affect our work. It's not separate. We are not like, we're humans studying humans. And we're humans studying something that almost everybody feels a little bit bad about. Now what's that, right? But all of it gets mixed up. So good science is reflexive. And what I mean by that is we maintain awareness that it's us affecting our work. So being gay as a sociopolitical label, talking about that as genetic doesn't really make sense unless you think that sociopolitical identities, like being a Republican, are genetic. And there's actually some evidence that that's true. But I'm going to leave that to my social psychology colleagues <laughs> to explain. <sighs> this is a quote um, from Alveson. Our interpretations of our interpretations Examining from the outset how the beliefs and biases we hold affect the work that we do. That's good science. So to end, this is a quote from one of my teachers um, in 2000, back in the olden days. So I'm also a graduate of Humboldt State University. Um, so is my father. So is my aunt. So is my grandmother. Um, and, and I was brought up in the very best of at that time in my department, fairly reductionistic. That means looking at things as if we could understand them as discrete eggs and discrete flour and discrete dark chocolate without considering the cake. And in 2000, I won a scholarship to go study at the Institute for Inequality, Sexuality, and Health, which is housed at San Francisco State, where I got a very big awakening about the importance of intersectionality. I studied with some amazing people from all over the country. And as it turns out, the reason I won the scholarship is that I am a rural person, not an urban person. And lo and behold, I didn't even know that they were different from me. Right? I did not understand that being rural gave me a particular lens, like dirty glasses that I look through that make me see the world, right? And I learned so much there. And one of my statistics teachers there, a brilliant, brilliant scholar who studies school bullying and safe schools for queer kids. Her name is Laura Shalaha. And she said that, you cannot fix an analysis what you have bungled in design. If you have a sloppy sorting variable so that the gay men are the guys on the beach and the straight men are the guys in the mall, no amount of fancy genetics that you do is going to fix that problem. I said at the beginning, I wanted you to leave less sure about sexuality than when you came in. I hope I did that. I hope I've demonstrated to you that the natural state of sexuality is diversity. So Kinsey, 
came about his study of sexuality coming from studying a creature called a gall wasp. And what struck Kinsey about the gall wasps was that they were every single one of them, over 10,000 of them he had looked at, were different from one another. No two gall wasps are exactly the same. And none of us cakes are exactly the same either. So sexuality is naturally diverse. That's its normal state. So I want to leave you with this. Bias exists. Nobody's objective. We don't measure sex well. And if we don't measure it well, our conclusions are invalid. And with that, my friends, thank you very much for listening. Melinda Myers, everybody. Before we do the question and answer, uh, we have a, a little bit of a, a special treat for you, for you guys, because this will be the, I believe, the first public announcement. President Lisa Rosbacher from Humboldt State University says it's okay to say Thank you, Dr. that Melinda Myers has just as of 36 hours ago been awarded the 2017-2018 Excellence in Teaching Award. Standing O. So, well deserved, congratulations. Um, so what we're going to do now is we're going to do some Q&A. And Nancy, over here. Keep my jacket on my boob. Keep your like jacket on your boob. <laughs> Definitely do that. Nancy's going to bring a microphone. And all so of the large-breasted people in the room just totally understood what I meant. Yeah. It's a problem. Uh, so. <laughs> Go ahead, Mike. I'm so far out of my league. Nancy's going to bring a microphone. Put your hand up if you have a question. I know there's definitely some questions out there. Who, who wants to start with the Q&A? More questions than you started. Um, so, Melinda, first off, congratulations. Thank you, Jessica. Um, well and long overdue. Thank you. Um, my question for you is in, regarding our, our own fear of our own sexuality. Yeah. Because you own a business yeah. and you're a therapist and you're a professor, yeah. do you notice any of those compartments differently in how we show up terrified of our own sexuality? Yes, in the, the questions that I get asked. So in the business, people are coming there about, they're not going to go there unless it's about sex, right? And if you think about it in the largest sense. So people come into the business and ask questions about sex in a particular way. And when somebody runs into me in the produce section of the co-op, <laughs> they could be asking me a question from wherever. Someone who asks a question about sexuality inside the therapy room is usually revealing something really vulnerable. And my students who are asking questions are precious because they help me think about this in a really new way. And they ask things that are just, I get new, I've been doing this, like I said, I've been doing this a really long time. And every semester I still get questions I've never been asked. And that's a really cool thing about teaching. So if I have a client that wants to explore their sexuality, what do I tell them? Well, it depends on what you mean by that. Well, that's what they mean, it depends on what they mean by that. Oh, I would ask them what they mean by that. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, and I think that the key is not thinking you know because of some boxes that they check for you about what you expect to find. And I know, Mike, that you're a, a therapist trainee, so I'm answering this question in that way. Somebody could say to you that I'm interested in exploring sexuality, and you might think you know what they mean. And that's the danger, because a young therapist, what we want to do is fix it. We want to help right now. And so we often jump in before really knowing what that person is asking us. So take all the gloves off and open the box and yeah. let it all go. And, and practice your eyebrow control. You, <laughs> this, you do, we develop this skill having teenagers, but we also develop it as therapists. Because, you know, people ask you questions, and what you don't want to do is be like, wait, i got to put my glasses on for effect. You know, be like, excuse me? <laughs> right? So you, you practice, and that's why we film student therapists, so that they can learn what their bodies are doing as they're contemplating their lack of how to answer this question, because that reads on your face. You're welcome. Anytime. Hypothetically, and not relating to me at all. Um, <laughs> imagine you had a gentleman from your generation who came in and, and um, was confused about his son's sexuality. How would you explain it in kind of terse, easy to define terms? Wow. So this person's coming into my therapy office, coming yeah. into, or just running into me in the grocery store, which context? Let's say the grocery store. Okay. Because that's a, that's a shorter conversation, right? So when he asks me this, he will demonstrate some stereotype or other, because Lord knows we've all got him, right? And what I will do is provide only enough evidence to shatter one of those stereotypes, and then I will smile and sashay my round butt right out of there. So, so I do that because I don't, if I beat this person over the head with it, it's not very long before he stops listening to me, right? I learned this with teenagers, too. So, so I dropped, like, one thing, right? Like, well, you know, there's actually a study that shows whatever it is. And, like, my grandfather, he had, like, a joke and a song for every occasion. May he rest in peace. I know, like, a study for every occasion. And so I usually have evidence that I can challenge it with. But I try to do it kindly. Like, you can't, people won't learn from you if they're afraid. Like, if you've ever had a coach that you were terrified of, you didn't perform your best. If you had a teacher you're terrified of, you don't perform your best. My job is to, like, make you just enough anxious that it improves your performance, right? That's what we do. <laughs> now, I'm giving away all of our secrets. <laughs> but when it comes to responding to someone who's demonstrating a stereotype, if I, like, get up on my high horse and I can easily do this and, like, berate them about being sexist or racist or homophobic or all of the above, that's not as effective as if I smile and I say, wow, yeah, I can understand that. There are other people who share this same false belief and let me, you know. And, but it'll be, like, it'll be, like, this big and it will be with a big smile and depending on the context, the age of the person, our social locations, I might even touch them on the arm. Smile. <laughs> Hello. Um, so I have a question regarding like the scientific community, except like peer-reviewed journals accepting um, research that like has this um, sickness lens that you mentioned, and like within peer reviews, like how do you like how do we not say that the language or the rhetoric that we are using and these publicly available like documents aren't impacting those that are reading it. Like, why isn't yeah. there this 
filter of like ethical feminist science <laughs> right yeah that's what we call it by the way I just didn't want to drop the f word on you too soon <laughs> I guess that's my question is right. that how do so we... that's exactly what we do is that now it's part of your training it wasn't when I was in school there are more of you who are going to be eloquent and be able to challenge that notion you can write to journals you can write responses to other people's papers and say so we do that collegially just like I might do with this hypothetical father. We don't like call them names. We point out the errors in the logic. And there are plenty of them. So that's the way it's gonna happen. Yes, you can write in response to. And then you're writing about the things that you, especially if the authors don't discuss it in their discussion section of the paper, you can write and say, gosh, I think you missed something here because of the way you were looking at it. Absolutely, go for it. Other questions? Um, so actually, I was just wondering, um, because a lot of the things you've touched on tonight, you had assigned a lot of amazing books, like when I was a student, um, like the Sexual Fluidity book and the whole book that was about what you yeah. were just talking about right. with the Two-Spirit. Yeah. Could you, um, I mean, can you share like maybe a couple titles of like, like I don't those know. two? Like those two, like yeah. either those two or like more that I haven't read. Maybe don't know? Okay. So Karen was my student in a class where a lot of the, the work that I'm talking about is assigned to students. So there is a great book about gender fluidity and the dynamic nature of sexuality in women. The book is called Sexual Fluidity and the author of that book is Lisa Diamond. Uh, there is a book with a group of ethnographies in it that explains um, what I'm talking about in terms of the diversity of the way we understand sex and sexuality and gender. And that author's name is Serena Nanda, N-A-N-D-A. And I think the title of her book is Gender Diversity. Um, it's like yellow and red, but now there's a second edition of it. I, because you know it's me, right, Karen? I have four pages of references that I am happy to give you. And some of them you have not read because they're since the class was, and I can never assign everything I think. This is a class there's no textbook for, so it's all readings I give my students, and bless their hearts, they actually read it. Um, but I can't make them read absolutely every journal article I find that I think is cool. That's just not reasonable, which they remind me of. So, but I do have that list, and I'm happy to give it to you. I think that I like peer-reviewed papers because I like arguing with them, to get back to that point. I like keeping my brain sharp. I like looking for this stuff and, and reminding myself how to create a cogent argument about it. It's always one-sided, though, because that author's not in the room when I'm discussing it. So I get to like hold up their paper, and they don't get to defend themselves. But. <laughs> I was right here. <laughs> I know. I know. I was ready. So uh, thank you for uh, sharing everything that you've shared so far. You're it's just on. wonderful. Thanks um, for inspiring me. I feel me. like it's a little bit too close. So, um, so my question is, um, for my own context, I'm on listservs. I'm constantly, constantly getting... Um, notifications about a certain psychologist is doing a new study and it's normally about trans people and about sexuality mm -hmm. it's just constant yeah either about right. psychologists or sociologists mm -hmm. um, I never really respond <laughs> and and I and I don't even tend to send them on mm -hmm. and I guess mm -hmm. a part of me is a little bit worried that I'm worried about the level of expertise in the research 
and I guess I'm not so sure that I can trust they're doing a good job. And mm -hmm. I wondered if you good. could speak about that. And yeah. is are, are there people really doing some good research with regards to the intersections between trans and sexuality everything and everything else? Yeah. Um, or should I just keep deleting those emails? Great question. <laughs> Great question. My suspicion is most of the people that you're getting those from are graduate students, and I would be cautious. I would look and see who their mentors are and see what those people are writing about. Um, looking at all of this stuff intersectionally is really new. There are some great researchers writing about it in sociology, in social work, and in psychology, but there are not as many people as those who are trying. It's easier, it's tidier, it's cheaper. Right, you're gonna get a research grant, you need to do it like, and get it done, because you gotta get it published, because you gotta get tenure. Not a pressure I have. There's a moment of appreciation in this. So if that pressure exists, then it makes people wanna do it in a way that's gonna get it done, a way that's expedient, right? So the impetus to do intersectional research, I think, is gonna fall on those people who are not worried about getting tenure, because they probably already have it. It's gonna fall on those of us who aren't unattached to that concept, really. I really admire my tenured colleagues, there are many of them here. But it's not, it's, not a, it's not a hamster wheel that I got on. It's not part of what I do. But it gives me the freedom to think about these things broadly, to think about measuring things that are really hard to measure, and to hopefully inspire other people to wanna to do that work, and to wanna do it myself later. So my, when I'm looking at students, Definitely looking at them intersectionally. You have to. I can't just say that, you know, this student who has this particular label has this characteristic. I mean, that's crazy. That's a crazy, it's, all eggs are not the same. All flowers are not the same. It's all affected by the cake it's in. And that, um, we will be seeing more of it. But I don't know a quick way of telling you, Lauren, whether the solicitation you get is from that framework or not. Although there should be an abstract of some kind that sets up the study, what they're studying and why, and you should have many clues about intersectionality or I would ignore it. I think we're just about out of time. Thank God. Uh, I didn't thank die. God. I didn't die. <laughs>And that is our show. If you want to follow up, we've got links and images posted in the show notes over at khsu.org. My favorite lecture is a collaboration between Humboldt State, KHSU, and Arcata Main Street. It's produced by Frank Whitlatch, Nancy Stevenson, and myself. Our live sound engineer is Chris Pereira, and Mark Jeffers is our recording engineer. Special thanks to the Plaza Grill, Kristen Gould, Hugh Dalton, Lost Coast Light and Sound, and of course, Melinda Myers. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and leave us a review if you like what you heard. This is Mike Dronkers, and we'll see you next time on My Favorite Lecture.